Our God, we thank you for keeping us and preserving us for another day, especially this day, the Lord's day, that we can rest and worship. We thank you for the beauty of this day, and we thank you for the way that your glory and wisdom and power are seen in the things that you have made. Lord, we ask for your help as we think about stewardship of your creation in this time. And also, Lord, as the classes now meet, the children's classes, we pray that you would bless those who are teaching and give them help and wisdom. And we pray, even at a young age, open the hearts of the children to receive the truth and to lay hold of Christ as their Savior and Lord. We ask that you would bless all that we do today and help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. When King David looked up at the night sky, no doubt he thought of God's greatness and he joined the chorus of the heavens in singing God's glory, declaring the glory of God. But David also considered his insignificance and he was moved to ask a question. And the question was, what is man that you are mindful of him? He asked that question of God. And what is the son of man that you visit him or you care for him? This is in Psalm 8.4. David marveled at this reality. He didn't deny it, but he marveled at the fact that God, the God of the heavens and the earth and everything in them would consider and take care of man. So he asked, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now, in asking the question, he essentially answers the question, Because man is such a creature and the only creature who has the capacity to consider the heavens and to ask a question like this. Because only man has been created in the image and likeness of God. And as he goes on to say in this psalm, only man has been crowned with glory and honor. So if you want to turn there, um, we're looking at Psalm 8, but then we're actually going to go back to the beginning again in Genesis, but in Psalm 8, David's asking this question, and he goes on to say in verse 5 of Psalm 8, speaking of man, and you will know that this is later applied to Christ. We looked at that in Hebrews 2, but it's also elsewhere applied to Christ in the New Testament. But in Psalm 8, 5, we read that, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. We could say above all the other creatures crowned with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have made him, man, to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. David is clearly reflecting on the opening pages of Genesis, and especially Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to which we turn our attention this morning as we continue our study of Christian ethics. And as far as the title goes for this lesson, I think creation stewardship sums it up well. So turn with me to Genesis 1, if you have a copy of the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1. We've been looking at the creation ordinances over the last three lessons, 
Pastor Jim has been leading us through that. And let me ask briefly, as we're thinking about creation ordinances, what are we talking about? What are some of those ordinances? Rest. Labor, which is implied in that rest. What else? Dominion. Marriage. Procreation. Worship. Good. These are so-called creation ordinances, which we find from the beginning mandated by God. So we'll look at two more in particular today, but they are connected. So we'll look at subduing the earth and man's dominion over the creatures. But obviously these are connected to the filling of the earth, which is connected to marriage and procreation. And then you cannot imagine subduing and having dominion without labor. And then, of course, the regular rest and worship that God calls us to have. Now, four of these creation ordinances are explicit in Genesis 1.28, and then two more are implied. And let me go ahead and read Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them. This is male and female that he has made, the man that he's made in his image. He blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These words are sometimes called the dominion mandate, or the creation mandate, or even sometimes the cultural mandate, and that term was coined by a Dutch reform theologian of the earliest 20th century, the, the cultural mandate. And we could also look, as we're thinking about this, to the second chapter of Genesis, verse 15, where we read that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So we're taking all of this together. If you want to call it the cultural mandate, you can. And the idea is this, as one man puts it, that it's a mandate for the development of culture, for the unfolding of the potentialities within the God-given good creation. That's what we're talking about here as we look at subduing the earth and dominion and Adam put in the garden to tend and to keep it. Now, in terms of ethics, which is our study, I want to consider whether this cultural mandate, this dominion mandate, points us in the direction of a biblical environmental ethic or what's been called even a land ethic. And then, if we have time, whether the biblical ethic includes principles of conduct for our relation to animals, to the creatures that God says we are to have dominion over. So that's where we're going. We could put it another way. In terms of our relation to the earth and all its fullness, which belongs to God, what does God require of us? Because that's really at the heart of ethics. What does God require of us? How should we conduct ourselves? How should we live, in this case, in relation to the creation? We're right to affirm that the biblical ethic focuses primarily on our relation to God and to other men. But it also focuses on our relation to the earth and to the creatures, as we see here in Genesis 1. So let's begin with the biblical foundations, what we've already read here in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. 
So here we have the biblical foundations for a biblical ethic, call it environmentalism, whatever you want, or of care for animals. In 1949, an American forester by the name of Aldo Leopold published an essay that was very influential, and it's still considered, as one person puts it, to be an enduring part of the canon of modern environmental ethics. And in this essay, which is called The Land Ethic, he makes this claim. He says that there is, there is as yet no ethic dealing with man's relation to land and to the animals and plants which grow upon it. He said this in 1949. There's no ethic yet, he said. Now, this claim, if I understand what he's saying, is not right. It's actually quite wrong. He's overlooking the biblical ethic dealing with this relation that we are to have to the land, to the earth, and to animals, the foundation of which I remind you again, Verse 28 of Genesis 1, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on it. And then Adam, your job in the garden is to tend and to keep it. So there we have the foundation of the biblical ethic, and it is also expanded on throughout the scriptures. Now, what is the context here of Genesis 1:28 and the mandates that are given there? We need to situate it in its context. What, what is the conduct, context? It's a little easier here than most cases. Yeah, it's before the fall, and it's after creation of the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So we have the six days of creation. Man hasn't been created yet, and then man is created in God's image, and then God blesses them and gives them this mandate. So we understand this context, and in particular, we see in the text that God has made all of the birds in the air, he's made the fish in the sea, he's made the things that are on the earth. And notice how God says that he's made them all according to its kind. According to its kind is repeated several times. And then finally, God says in verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Not according to its kind, like the animals, but in a unique way, according to our likeness. And this is making them in the image of God, male and female. We have that in verse 27, and then we have verse 28. So that is very briefly the, conduct, the context that we have. And I'll also point out, when God created everything before he created man, which is the apex of creation, what did he see he saw that it was good. So he looked at the earth and he looked at the animals on it. He looked at the birds that were in the air and the fish that were in the sea. And all of this he declared to be good. And then, of course, when he made man, it was very good. That's the context. Now consider first filling the earth and subduing it. Fill the earth and subdue it. Murray stresses that the mandate to fill the earth is not merely for the purpose of populating the globe, but of subduing the earth and its vast and various resources, 
of exercising dominion over the creature. So you see this. It's not just be fruitful and multiply in the context of marriage, which Pastor Charlie will talk about, Lord willing, next week or begin to talk about. But this filling of the earth was purposeful in order to subdue the earth and then also to exercise that dominion over the creature. So you see that it is purposeful. It's not just a matter of populating the globe. The global subduing and ruling could only happen if the earth were filled. And that is something we should think about that fallen mankind resisted. You read about that in Genesis 11, how with the Tower of Babel, and they were wanting to stay localized, and yet God ended up sending them out into the world. So they were resisting part of this mandate to go out into all of the world and to subdue the earth. Now, this verb subdue, it occurs 14 times in the Old Testament, and you'll find it used in the context of military conquest. So, for example, Joshua was leading Israel in the conquest of the promised land. And after defeating enemies, we read that the land was subdued before the people of Israel. So they conquer it, and it is subdued before them. Joshua 18.1. It's also used of people brought into subjection as male and female slaves. For example, Jeremiah 34, 11 and 16. So that's the verb, to subdue. However, the subjection in Genesis 1:28 is not that of violent conquest, like Joshua defeating the enemies that were in the promised land. It is not that. Murray says well that we are not to suppose that the subduing was to be that of conquering alien or foreign powers and recalcitrant powers. Rather, it's this, of making the earth habitable to men, of putting its resources to good and to God-glorifying use, that's key, Discovering the treasures that are hidden in the earth. I think it was Calvin that said something like, before man was born, he was already rich. Before God made man, he was already rich. Because all of these resources were deposited in the earth. But part of this subduing is drawing out the potential of the metals and the minerals, the petroleum, the natural gas, all of these things that God has put in this earth. Or making use of herbs, fruit of trees for food, cultivating the ground. All of these things fall under this category of subduing the earth. Let me quote Murray again. He says that it must imply the subduing. It must imply the expenditure of thought and skill and energy in bringing the earth and its resources under such control that they would be channeled to the promotion of certain ends which they were suited and designed by God to fulfill, but which would not be fulfilled apart from the exercise of man's design and labor. He's simply saying God put the resources in the earth for a purpose so that we would use them, but we would have to work and labor and think and discover in order to make use of them. Let me give a simple illustration. Maybe it'll help. Take a coconut, the fruit of a coconut palm. Maybe you can imagine you've just discovered it 
and you're looking at it there, and maybe one of them falls and you have it, and you're going to, remember we're thinking about subduing the earth. So a man has to look at this and discover that it has several layers. It has three layers. It's got that green outside layer, and then you have the layer with all the little fibers on it, those kinds of things, and man breaks it open, and maybe you find that the water spills out, and you say, oh, I could probably drink that water. So you learn to drink the water, and then you see the flesh that's on the inside, and you learn that it tastes pretty good, and you figure out how to break it up, and maybe use a rock to open it up, and by the way, maybe used a rock to open it, as you're thinking, how in the world am I going to get this open? There's a tool, a rock, so you smash it against the rock, or you smash the rock against the coconut. All of this is subduing. You figure out ways to use the meat or the oil. So not just for food. You do use it for that, and maybe you learn to combine it with other things to make other things more enjoyable. You figure out ways to process this and to prepare this for food, to enjoy it in different ways. You figure out that you can make an oil, and maybe there's medicinal uses, or we could say cosmetic uses. So maybe it's good for your hair, or you figure out, oh, this can be used as a natural deodorant. Or put it on your skin. Maybe it, I don't know, but maybe UV protection, certainly moisturizing your skin, all of these kinds of things. Entertainment. Here we have a ball that we can throw. And maybe we could kick it, but we learn that that hurts our foot, so we don't do that. All of this is part of subduing the earth. And what about the fiber on the outside? This would be great for kindling for fire. Maybe we can make twine, which can be used to make rope and other things like mats, maybe clothing, rough clothing, I don't know. Or maybe those fibers can be put together and they can make something like a bed or a pillow. We can plant this coconut in the ground and we can grow other trees. This is an example of what is intended by subdue the earth. Somebody, maybe it was Adam and Eve, maybe it was one of their offspring, discovered the coconut for the first time and had to come up with these things. That's part of man created in the image of God given the mandate to subdue the earth. Secondly, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that is on the earth. We could say the animal kingdom. God says have dominion, rule over them. Now, this idea is very closely tied to the subduing of the earth. We might even say that dominion assumes subjection. So man could not exercise dominion apart from first filling the earth and subduing it. You see the connection there? So if there's a king who's exercising dominion, he has to first subdue, and then he exercises dominion. This verb is found a little bit more often, 23 times instead of 14 And it means basically to rule over or to exercise kingly authority. For example, it's used of Solomon's dominion over all the kings in a given region, which we read about in 1 Kings chapter 4. Or also of Solomon's supervisors who were ruling over his laborers. They were exercising dominion to make sure things were built as they ought to be built. Now, it does not imply this verb to rule or to exercise dominion. It does not imply severity or cruelty because we find several words in the scriptures that say you're not to rule over people with severity or with rigor as it's sometimes translated. So that is not part and parcel with this word. You can rule 
with severity or not. And so God says, do not rule over people with harshness, cruelty, force, rigor, severity. Now, the dominion mandate has specific reference to the animal kingdom. Verse 28 again. Man created in God's image is not on an equal footing with animals. But, to use the language of Psalm 8, God has crowned man with honor and glory, far above the animals. And God has given dominion over all the works of his hands. He's given that dominion to mankind. So we might even speak, as one person does, of man's royal stewardship of God's possessions. Our royal stewardship, exercising dominion over God's possessions, the earth and all of its fullness. Man's dominion over the creatures is not to be a cruel domination. That's not what this word means again. It's not what's being said here. It's not to be a cruel domination marked by selfish exploitation, but it is to mirror the way that God rules over his creation. Our ruling and our dominion over the creatures then is to be a kind dominion and a beneficent dominion that leads to the good of what we're reigning over, just like in God's case. So we are to pattern this dominion after God's own rule over his creation. And we read in Psalm 145.9 that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Now briefly also as we're thinking about the foundations here, we have to consider Adam's job, we could say, in the garden. God planted this garden, we read, and that He gave Adam a job. There was work that Adam was to do before the fall in the garden. And it's simply that he put the man there, Adam, in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The word tend is literally to work it. We could say to cultivate it, to keep it as the idea of preserving. So clearly Adam was put there to keep the garden beautiful and orderly and to promote its vitality and fruitfulness, all of these things. And certainly this falls under the category of his subduing and his dominion. And it sheds light on what God means when he says, subdue the earth and exercise dominion. You see how that task he's given, that sheds light on what this subduing and dominion should look like. So, That's the foundation. Now, with that, we can go on to ask a question. This is the second part here. Can we speak about a biblical environmental ethic? It's been strongly asserted that the biblical doctrine of dominion in Genesis chapter 1 is a major cause of the environmental crisis. Setting aside whether you think there's a crisis or not, that's what people are saying. It has been said, this was starting back in the 60s, and many more have said it, that the biblical doctrine of dominion in Genesis 1 is is a big part of the problem. And so one person has said that we shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Now, what's your 
instinct as you hear that. Is that a Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence except to serve man? No. It's true that the earth, this is Murray's language, that the earth and its resources were made for man and not man for them, just like the Sabbath, Pastor Jen had alluded to this. So that's true. The earth and its resources were made by God for man, and that the earth and its resources were to be brought into the service of man's well-being, enjoyment, and pleasure. That's true. We get that from Genesis 1.28. But that's not to say that nature has no reason for existence except to serve man, as if man were mandated to exploit and abuse God's good creation. And then, of course, we know that it's made for God's glory, ultimately. Genesis 1.28 and 2.15, the biblical foundations, clearly point us in the direction of stewardship, of creation stewardship, of care, and of concern, and of cultivation. So man is mandated to use God's creation, the earth and its resources, even the animals, but not to abuse to beautify and not to trash, to harness resources, not to waste them, to promote vitality, not to stamp out life. And all of this resulting in flourishing cultures and societies and environments and not failing ones. That's what's envisioned when God gives man this mandate, the cultural mandate. So the dominion cultural mandate rightly understood and rightly applied or carried out, even in this fallen world, would lead to flourishing, not only of humans, but of our environment. And the two, of course, are very closely connected. You can't separate them. If the environment isn't flourishing, humans will not long flourish in that environment. So all of this was intended for the flourishing of the earth and the flourishing of humanity to the glory of God. Man's stewardship and care for the creation or the environment will never undo the effects of the fall. We do need to keep that in mind. That this creation will always be groaning, to use the language of Romans 8, Paul. Creation is groaning right now. That's always going to be the case until it is delivered, creation is delivered, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans 8.21. So we should not imagine that somehow we're going to reverse the curse or overcome the effects of the fall. Genesis 3, the curse upon the ground. That will remain, and yet I believe we can expect Flourishing if we would follow the biblical ethic that God has given to us concerning our relation to the earth and to the animals. So that means that we'll never be able to achieve the pristine, unspoiled conditions of Eden. However, since God values creation, and for itself, I think we can say, because he said it's good when he saw it, So not just in how it could serve man, but in itself, God values creation and even delights in his creation because that's true. 
And since his plan of redemption includes the whole creation that now groans, surely we too should place a great value upon the earth and all of its fullness which belongs to God. See the logic of that? So we can agree actually with a secular environmentalist who says that we should respect the environment, that we should admire it, that we should have a high regard for its value and not merely its economic value, what we can get out of it. But we can agree when he asserts that a proper land ethic changes man to a plain member and citizen of the land community. We have to remember God has put us over his creation and we are to subdue it. We need to keep that straight. And many environmentalists today would not, but there's a lot that we could agree with. And although they might speak of the intrinsic value of nature, we can recognize it as God's creation, his good creation, which he cares for and which is for his glory. So a proper land ethic must have as its foundation the divine mandates of Genesis 1.28, viewed in light of man's unique glory and honor created in the image of God and also of that task that God gave Adam in the garden to tend and to keep it. Now, building on this foundation, I want to briefly mention a few other biblical lines of thought. And I mentioned this text already, but this is the first thing, that God's tender mercies are over all of his works, Psalm 145, 9. And in his works of providence, he gives careful attention to the earth and all of its creatures. If you want to turn to Psalm 104, we have a beautiful record of this. In Psalm 104, the hymn that we sang was at least loosely based on Psalm 104. But in particular, we see Psalm 104, verses 10 to 18. So having praised God for his works of creation, it goes on to speak of his works of providence, of his upholding all things and even governing all things. But it's in this language of God's intimate care for his creation. Verse 10, he sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees, the high hills for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. So when we see that God has this sort of careful attention to his creation, surely we ought to as well. And if he's made a habitat for the stork and the wild goats and the rock badgers, we should be concerned to preserve the habitat that God has made for them. Second line of thought here is just as the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1, so does the earth and everything in it. 
So for example, to think of a issue today that's talked about, deforestation, and then the resulting loss of biodiversity that would come from that, that should be a concern to us. It should be a concern when plant and animal species are wiped off of the earth. Here's how one man puts it. Every loss of species is a diminution of man's opportunity to observe the wisdom and perfection of God. In other words, if every living thing gives us an opportunity, if you could observe an ant for a while, you would eventually, if you're thinking rightly and seeing rightly, give glory to God and praise him for his wisdom and how he has designed the ant. Now imagine that the ant is wiped off the earth. Well, that's one more thing that is taken away that if we would study it, we would give glory to God. That's just what he's saying, basically. So to wipe out species, to wipe out animals and plants that give glory to God and show his wisdom and power, that ought to be a concern to us, right? That's a line of thought that I think is thoroughly biblical. A third line of thought. Care for the environment is tied to love of neighbor. Let me just give some obvious examples. Polluted air, breathing polluted air. I mean, that's a love for neighbor thing. And I realize your neighbor might be not born yet. It might be neighbors 100 years from now or more. Uh, polluted water sources, those affect people very much in their health. Uh, depleted soils, those kinds of things. So I think we need to understand care for the environment, for God's world, as part of love for neighbor. A fourth line of thought is the seventh year Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, which we read about in Leviticus 25 and then elsewhere. But God said every seventh year, you should let the land rest. Don't farm it. Don't do all the things that you would do on the other six years. Now, this, of course, had religious significance, but it was also good for the soil. I think we need to recognize that. There was, there was a very practical reason for that, and this by and large, was not done. But there was care expressed in that for the nutritional value or the, the, um, the nutrients that would be in the soil, that they're not depleted. And then another line of thought is the cosmic scope of redemption. A key text is in Colossians 1, and let's turn there. In Colossians chapter 1. which speaks of the preeminence of Christ over all things. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to these words, verses 15 to 20. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or they hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him, to reconcile all things 
to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So there's a few truths there that we don't have time to unpack, but we ought to meditate on as we're thinking about the biblical environmental ethic that all things were made through Christ and for him. And that at least means for his glory and his honor. So that we should view the creation as something that's made through Christ and is for his glory. But then also the creation is something brought within the scope of God's redemptive plan to redeem all things through the blood of Christ. And you see that at the end of what I read there, how God was by Christ reconciling all things, all of creation to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So surely these things should affect our view of creation. Now, we don't have time to discuss current environmental concerns, and whether or not they're valid, those kinds of things. I leave that to you, but these are some of the biblical basis. And yes, there is a biblical environmental ethic. God cares about how we treat the earth. And he has spoken to us clearly and given us some guidance in these matters. But we could talk about global warming, greenhouse gas emissions. We could talk about all of these hot-button issues, the burning of fossil fuels, pollution, production of excessive waste. We have tons of packaging in our day that gets thrown away. Deforestation, farming practices, access to clean water, especially in what we call third world countries. We could go on and on. Now, politics and questionable science aside, surely these things should concern Christians. We should care about our stewardship of God's creation. Now, practically speaking, we should consider first the environments that God has placed under our care. I'm not saying you can go and change all of these things and all of these policies, but what can you do? You ought to think about this and, and certainly not just go throw your trash and, and add pollution to this world. That doesn't please God. But there's many things that you can think through in your own environment, in the care of that environment, how you can steward it to God's glory. Now, we're going to skip over uh, for now, and I, I suppose we'll come back to it. But we were going to ask the question, what about our relation to animals? It was probably too ambitious to try to do all of this. But uh, I will say that what I have said, much of what is the foundation for our care and concern for the earth applies to all its fullness and our dominion over the creatures and how we should treat animals. And there are some texts that we can look at. Uh, let me close with this, though. This cultural mandate, if you want to call it that, Genesis 1.28, was given to all of mankind. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all of the creatures. That's given to all of mankind, and it's still binding on all of mankind. But there is a special mandate given to the church alone, and that is the Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28. So I want to end by having us think about these two things and understanding that the cultural mandate is not the Great Commission, but also that the Great Commission to 
not go into all the world and subdue the earth, but to go into the world and make disciples. We could speak of maybe subduing the earth by proclaiming the gospel, that they be brought by God's grace under the authority of Christ. But they're not at odds. They often work together. So we have technology that help us broadcast the gospel. That's just one simple example. But we must remember that the cultural mandate isn't the Great Commission. And to think that the church's mission is just to subdue the earth and exercise dominion. No, it's very specifically. Yes, that still applies and it works together with the mission of the church, which is to go into all the world, to all the nations, and to make disciples of those nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and so on. And I'll just say this, that these matters, maybe you've not thought much about this, and I realize it it tends to make Christians uncomfortable, because a lot of the people who are speaking about these things are unbelievers or liberal Christians who have denied, we can't even call them Christians, they've denied basic truths of the word of God, and so it makes us uncomfortable. But think about this, that these things could be a bridge to evangelism. Because a lot of unbelievers today are very concerned about the environment. And if we could talk about animals and things like that, we have veganism and vegetarianism. So this could be a bridge to assert what God has said about his creation and how we should care for that. And that could transition to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for these few moments to spend in your word. And we pray that you would shed greater and greater light upon these things. We thank you for your good creation, even in this fallen world, how wonderful it is and how we see your glory and power and wisdom. And we pray that we would be faithful to steward that creation as you have called us to, to do it for your glory, to exercise dominion over the creatures in a way that honors you. Again, we thank you for this day and ask that you would continue to bless our time, especially now as we gather to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.